you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 9, uh, we're going to start in verse 31. Um, we've got kind of a, a short little passage here this morning with not too many twists and turns in it, so I'm actually going to take the opportunity to, to back up and do a little bit of recap. My wife hates that, but she didn't, you know, I didn't ask for her permission or input, so I'm just going to do it. Uh, so a little bit of recap here. I think it's helpful sometimes to step back and just, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees, right? What is, what is uh, Luke doing with this book here? And uh, we want to see the big picture. So again, our author is Dr. Luke, and similar to his former book, The Gospel of Luke, uh, it's, this is a very organized account of what has occurred. In, in the Gospel of Luke, he says that he wrote an orderly account of the life and the ministry of Christ. And what we find here in the book of Acts is similar, kind of an orderly account of the rise of the Christian church. And so that's kind of what we found, find here. Some have suggested that the title uh, of the book of Acts, uh, that the word Acts is shorthand for what ought to be a longer title, the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. So anyways, in chapter 1, I think Dr. Luke gives us a really nice outline for kind of how we consider uh, the book and sort of its main movements. Uh, and so we'll kind of look here at verse 4 and then work our way through uh, to verse 8. So this is actually Acts chapter 1. Now that I told you we were starting in chapter 9, 32, we're in chapter 1. <clears throat> On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Then he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So here's our outline, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so these three spheres really kind of provide a nice, helpful outline for the narrative that we see in the book of Acts. Uh, so first of all, uh, again, we see that the church is born uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, this is sort of chapters 1 through 7. Then we see the church expand into Judea, Judea and Samaria. And these are really chapters 8 through 12. And that's, we're right there in the middle of that right now as we're working through it. And then sort of the last section, the last third, as the church spreads into the ends of the earth, as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, primarily through uh, the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to dial down and draw out a few more details just to refresh your memory, kind of of the sweep of where we've been. Uh, in Jerusalem, we saw Pentecost. We saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we saw the formation of this idyllic church. Uh, this, this Christian community meeting regularly together in the temple uh, to receive instruction by the apostles. They enjoyed house-to-house -house fellowship, sharing food and, and all manner of things with one another. The apostles healed in the temple and preached the gospel there for which they were arrested and uh, incarcerated and flogged. And so in Jerusalem, we also see sort of the early challenges that the first century church faced. 
Uh, we saw external persecution. We saw internal corruption with Ananias and Sapphira that really placed this young infant church in jeopardy. And then we also saw this potential distraction, if you remember, where the Grecian Jews were overlooked in the daily distribution of food. food. And here's this rift, here's this tension, uh, a great possibility for distraction uh, from the mission of the church. And the apostles come up with a wise decision there. And so what we're meant to see through all of this, all of these various challenges, we are meant to see that Christ is building his church and that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What we see over and over again is this refrain, which looks something like, and the church grew. Uh, Seven times we see this, and I've listed those for you. We get the eighth one in our passage this morning in verse 31, chapter 8, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, and it was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. And then just shortly after that, we saw again that persecution broke out, and this time at the hands of the young Jewish radical Saul, uh, basically attempting to protect what he saw as the purity of Judaism, as he understood it, and trying to snuff out this aberrant movement, this Jesus movement called the way. But instead of quenching it, he had just ended up spreading it further, even by his own efforts to destroy it. So then we have our second section, Judea and Samaria, right? And here we saw the church expand into this this new area where we we saw even sort of these stigmatized Samaritans come to faith. Simon the sorcerer believes and is baptized. A man, a CFO from Ethiopia rides into town and he comes to faith and is baptized. And even the chief persecutor of the church, Saul, has an encounter with the risen Lord and also comes uh, to believe. And then as we look forward into in sort of the upcoming chapters, what we're going to see is that the Christian church expands into the ends of the earth, right? As Jesus calls it. And this expansion will happen largely at the hands of the apostle Paul, as he will soon be called. Now, this isn't, I brought this up last week, and some of you were looking at me sideways like, really? Saul the persecutor, and Paul, the same person, he has always had both names. It's not that at his conversion, Saul became Paul, as though a new name were ascribed to him. He's always possessed both. Saul was his given name, his Jewish name, named for the first king of Israel. But Paul is his Greek name. So as he comes to know the Lord and begins to minister to the Gentiles, it's his Greek name, Paul that is used primarily. It's not that he got a new name, it's one he's always had. Kind of like in Spanish class in high school, my class name was Enrique. And if I get mocked at home every now and then, Amy will call me Enrique. You may not do that, okay? I'm telling you right now. This is going to be the interactive portion of our service. I would like you to turn to the person next to you or near you and ask them what subject, what foreign language they had in high school, and what was their class name. Please go now. (laughs) 
Okay, it sounds like most of you have gotten it by now, and so now I'm curious. I didn't tell you I was going to ask, but I'm going to ask. What was the best name you heard? If you heard a really good one, share it with us all. Just shout it out. What do you got? Enrique. Come on. (laughs) We've already talked about this. Other than Enrique, what do you got? Jaime? Okay. What was this one? Vicente? Oh, Vincente. Nice. Any, anybody have a, take German and have a German name? Curve cutter. Curve cutter? Ooh, I can't even repeat that one. I might get in trouble if I say it wrong, so I won't. Anyways, Paul has always been Paul and Saul. It's just that we tend to use his Gentile, or his Greek name, as he ministers more to the Gentiles. So now as we get into this final, or kind of approach this final third of the book, um, of Acts here, and we see the gospel going to the Gentiles through Paul, Peter's ministry starts to taper off. There's this big exchange. The narrative is told through the life and ministry of Paul. But before that happens, we get a couple more stories with Peter. And I'm glad for that because I'm a Peter guy. I'm a Peter guy. I don't know if I would get along with Paul. I don't know if you can say that about an apostle without getting struck by lightning, but I, Paul seems like an intense guy. I don't, know, I don't know if we'd be friends. But I get the sense that Peter and I would be friends. We would at least go fishing together, right? We have, we have this in common. And, and we would give each other a hard time. Peter would say, you know, Eric, you'll catch more fish if you use nets, right? And I'll say, come on, dude, real men fish with a fly rod. Let's go, you know? And we'd be needling each other, I think. We'd be talking about who caught more fish. And he'd say, well, I caught 153 with Jesus. And I would say, yeah, if I was fishing with Jesus, I would catch more fish too. So I just imagine that we would be friends. And so the next couple um, of stories that we get in, in the book of Acts are sort of from Peter and from his perspective. So uh, let's look at this. Acts uh, chapter 9, verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Luda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Luda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas, and I think we can all agree that's an unfortunate name. And I imagine she went by Tabitha, mostly. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Luda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Luda, They sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and he got down on his knees, and he prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, 
and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with the tanner named Simon. So here we have this double healing by the Apostle Peter here. And both of them are remarkable. And it's almost easy for us to skip the first one and go to the second because it's so dramatic. But the first one is significant. If you think about it, my mom just had knee surgery uh, recently. She had knee replacement. She's been walking around with a bum leg for just one year. And it's been incredibly irritating to her, incredibly bothersome. And I, like a good son, have just been calling and teasing her about her walker and needing to get a horn and tassels and maybe a headlamp for it. And, but she feels incredible relief that this has now been done and that she's moving towards healing. This man has been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. And then to suddenly be able to walk. What an incredible relief. And then, of course, the resurrection is, of Tabitha is truly amazing. And so these two towns are buzzing about what they have seen and heard here. And it's kind of reminded me a little bit, just a little bit, of what we saw this past week. For those of you who are football fans, you didn't even need to be a football fan to hear this story about Tamar Hamlin, who went into cardiac arrest, right, on the field. They shut down the game, uh, didn't reschedule it. Uh, I'm not trying to get into controversial issues with anybody, but, uh, and here, this man who, as I understand it, is proclaims to be a believer, his whole team, both, both teams and people all over, the, all over the country were praying for this man. I saw on ESPN a sportscaster stop the, 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 the casting of the, of, of the news there and not just say thoughts and prayers, actually prayed on air. It was amazing. Now, this, wasn't, this was just a resuscitation from cardiac arrest. The situation that we have with Tabitha is much more dramatic. She's dead, right? Dead as a doornail, as Dickens would say it. No question about it. And she is uh, resuscitated. So, again, there's not too many twists and turns in this passage. I don't think there's a ton of questions about what happened, but I do think it prompts questions about what we ought to expect. And that's where I want to focus uh, my time this morning. And so our first question is this, are miracles for today? Are miracles for today? And at the outset here, I want, I want to avoid two traps or two common errors. And the first error is this. I want to avoid the error that is too closed uh, to miracles, right? Closed off, don't happen, not at all, never. But I also want to avoid the other camp that is sort of overly expectant. I'll call it that. I think those are errors on both sides, and I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle here. So let me start with kind of the overly expectant side of things. And I'm just going to give you a couple of anecdotes to kind of give you a picture of what this looks like. Uh, Many of you are familiar with a church in uh, Redding, California called Bethel Church, of all things. And um, they are firmly in this camp of what I would call overly expectant. And let me give you a story. Back in 2019, just recently here, there was a tragic death of a two-year-old girl. She was the daughter of one of the worship leaders at the church. And I... I cannot imagine losing one of my kids. 
I cannot imagine at such a young age, two years old, right, brimming with life. Awful, tragic death. And instead of moving towards a memorial service, instead, for some reason, um, the parents and the church and people all over the place were declaring there was going to be a miracle and that she was going to be raised. And so they kept her body around and began pursuing this. And this went into not just day one, but day two, and into day three, and into day four, and into day five. And around the sixth day, they declared, okay, we need to have a memorial. But they were living in what I would call this over-expectant state of, of looking for this miracle. Uh, I think all of us probably know somebody, have run into somebody over the years who has said, yes, I, I have this illness or I have cancer or whatever, but I'm not going to look to physicians or medicine. I'm going to pray for a miracle. I'm going to trust God and, and deny medical intervention. Um, there is a, a musical artist on, on K-Love right now, and to be honest with you, I really, rarely, 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 I don't listen to K-Love and Air One anymore. Because I hear this overly expectant uh, crowd, I hear this influence laced throughout most of the songs that I'm hearing there. And it's bothersome to me, and I get irritated, and I get road rage, and I don't want to have that when I'm driving. So I go to talk radio instead, (laughs) to calm me down. (laughs) But there's an artist on there right now, his name is Cody Carnes, and he has a mixture of some songs that I think are good and and others that are not. But one right now that he's playing is called Too Good to Not Believe. And the lyrics of this song are just laced with this expectation of miracles, this over-expectant thing. In fact, when you look at the music video that goes alongside it, you see this service where he's per- performing this song, and the crowd is just kind of whipped up in this frenzy of sensationalism and emotionalism. You've probably also heard of the Bethel School of Ministry, which is with this church in Reading, which tries to teach people how to perform miracles. And I know one fellow that went down to be a part of this and was so disillusioned by what he saw that he left it and he now no longer claims to be a Christian. And so I think what happens is when we have a culture of this over-expectance where this is created, it oftentimes generates for people a disappointment with God when he does not show up or do the miracle or work as expected. And when we create this over-expectation, we end up creating a trap door for people's faith. So I want to caution against this side. I think it's a fair question to ask this too and an important one. Where does this over-expectation come from? And I think there are two sources, and I, I won't try to do these quickly here. But the first one, I think, is this. In some instances, it's a well-intentioned but misguided reading of passages or books like the book of Acts. I, I think they read Acts, and they think that what happens there is to be normative in today's world. And I don't think that's the case. I think that's a a mistaken hermeneutic or a mistaken interpretation, sometimes referred to as the is-ought fallacy. In other words, it's where you look at the text and you see what is reported, this is what is, and then you immediately jump to the conclusion, therefore that's what ought to be. Sometimes the text is just reporting the news. 
In a book like Acts, it's primarily history. It's showing us the rise of the Christian church, but I don't think it's prescriptive saying it ought to always go like this for Christians. So I think that's an understandable but a mistake. Um, So I, I do think, well, I'll get to more of that later here. I want to say this. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what Hebrews teaches, right? But God does work with different people in different times in different ways. So there is a continuity that we have with Acts, but there's also some some discontinuity. And so if I'm going to run into somebody in this over-expectant camp, I'm going to offer correction to them uh, but I especially, I want to be careful to know where the source is. If it's coming from text and a misunderstanding of Acts, I'm going to be a little sharper. But there's another source that I think this, this crowd develops from, and it tends to come from crisis. I have cancer. My child has a brain tumor. This illness has just occurred. What will we do? And even though I might offer correction to that crowd, I'm going to do it a little more sensitively, more compassionately, but still wanting to address it. I'll give you an example. Dan Wallace, for those of you who are familiar with our Christian Thought Forum, Dan Wallace was one of our speakers that came up. It felt like we were hanging out with G.K. Chesterton when he came here. I don't know if you interacted with him, but it was kind of fun. But Dan had almost a crisis in his own life because his son developed cancer. And he became very hopeful that God would do something about this. And Dan is a cessationist, meaning he thinks that sort of the miraculous gifts have kind of ceased. But he began to realize that he was not recognizing a full Trinitarian interaction with God. That he had sort of become Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. But wasn't recognizing the Holy Spirit of God and his power to work. So in any case, this sort of this crisis caused him to do um, some introspection and looking to relate to God in a more personal way than he had before. And I think it was actually a good adjustment for him. So I just want to say this. As we encounter people in the overly expectant camp, I think especially conservative Christians like our church, uh, I think we want to try to understand where is this coming from, and that will help inform my tone as I offer correction to, to where they're at here. Um, Now, the other camp I want to caution against, so we don't want to be in the overly expectant, but neither do we want to be in the overly closed camp. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Thomas Jefferson. Have you heard of the Jefferson Bible? The Jefferson Bible is a Bible of his own making. Thomas Jefferson took issues with miracles. So he liked the moral teaching of Jesus. So what he did to his Bible was he took a razor blade to it and he cut out all of the passages in the New Testament that had to do with the miraculous. You know what he ended up with? An 84-page Bible. You you end up taking a lot out when you do that. Um, And I want to say this, or just loud and clear. God can do a miracle anytime he wants. God can do a miracle anytime he wants. Uh, He is not powerless to act. He is not unaware of what concerns me. I think we ought to ask for miracles. I think we ought to pray for that. But we need to be careful not to demand that. I'll get to that more later. 
So let me just bring this into sort of personal application, even kind of my own hypothetical realm. If tomorrow I was diagnosed with cancer, I'm going to do two things. Number one, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask boldly that God would heal me. And I'm going to ask you all to do the same. And number two, I'm going to find the best oncologist I can in town. And I'm not hedging my bets. I'm just saying I think God uses both. God can do something in a miraculous fashion. And God can wonderfully use and equip skillful physicians to also promote a healing in us, so to speak. In fact, we could go around this room this morning, right now, and say that within the last five years, there's probably half a dozen people who were diagnosed with cancer and who sit here cancer-free because they prayed, because they had early detection through a colonoscopy or an annual exam, because they had surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, or D, all of the above. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. He uses people and he uses agents, right, to, to provide these kinds of things. It's not always a miracle. So I'm willing to look for help from modern medicine, and I don't see that as anti-God or anti-faith. And I'm willing to pray hard for a miracle as well. And God will do what he wants. That's his prerogative. So um, again, I do see, the, back to the question, are miracles for today? I'm going to say yes and no. God still does miracles when he wants to. But I don't expect to see them at the same cadence or interval that we do in the book of Acts. Why? Because God is doing something unique in the first century world. Part of the miracles that we see there oftentimes are signs authenticating his divine activity. So we see this at the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We see miracles legitimizing apostles. In fact, that's something that they very specifically claim is necessary to affirm an apostle. I'll get to that in a second. And then we also see them claim the authenticity of the gospel as it spreads particularly into new territories like Joppa here or Luda here. So um, the apostle Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he lets us see that an apostle needed to be affirmed by miracles. That's one of the ways you knew they were a representative of God. He says, again, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs and wonders and miracles. So that's why I don't expect to see miracles on the same level, frequency, cadence today as I did then. The purpose then was to authenticate what God was doing. Okay? So secondly, are miracles the greater works that Jesus referred to? So if you talk to somebody in this overly expectant crowd, they're very often going to say, hey, you know what? Jesus said we would do greater works than he. And that oftentimes becomes a justification to expect such miracles. Um, well, it's true Jesus said something like that, but let's go back and look at it here. This is John 14, starting in verse 11. He says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whomever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. So let's stop right there. 
So I think that's oftentimes the passage that the overly expectant crowd will go to. But interesting, the word that's used there, works, is, is not the common word used for miracles. The common word used for miracles is dunamai. And the word used there is erga, works. So I'll just say this. I don't think Jesus is referring specifically to or merely to miracles. I think he's referring to maybe a host of things. And actually, we could consider it this way. Think about the miracles that Jesus performed. Casting out demons. Multiplying food. Raising Lazarus from the dead. Calming a storm. Now, let me ask the question. Are we going to do greater miracles than these? How do you do a greater miracle than those? So I don't really think that's what the text is saying. I think it's saying we'll do greater works. Uh, So if Jesus isn't referring to a miracle here, then what are these works that we might do on a greater scale or a greater capacity than Jesus himself? And you know what I think it is? It's evangelism. It's proclamation of the gospel. I think proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers is the greater work that we get to do. And if you think about this, much of the ministry of Jesus was teaching that the Messiah must be handed over, rejected, killed, and then rise. Jesus was pointing to what would happen. That was his gospel proclamation. And the disciples themselves barely believed that until it happened and they recalled everything that he had taught. And we are in a privileged place today as those empowered by the Holy Spirit to make that same declaration, not that it will happen, but that it has happened. And we get to declare, based upon the finished work of Christ, that we can all be reconciled to a holy God through faith in Jesus. And we get to see conversions on a greater scale than Christ himself saw. This, in my estimation, is the greater work that we get to do. Greater than, I will say, being healed or temporarily raised, we get to announce that people can be eternally secure in the family of God by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That is a greater work. So as we kind of come back to our passage here, I don't think the greater work is the healing of Aeneas or even the resurrection of Tabitha. At best, these are equal works with what Jesus himself did, right? But the whole town in Luda and Joppa believed and were saved. I'm going to call that a greater work. Lazarus died again. So did Tabitha. But those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are eternally secure. It's a greater work. So thirdly here, who performs miracles and how? Uh, I'm going to point back to our our stories here, you notice that the town gets excited because Peter's here. Peter. And I think, first of all, that sort of indicates that it wasn't like every disciple of Jesus all over the place was performing miracles. They were like, no, 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 we've got a a miracle-performing apostle in town. Let's call him. So, first of all, that shows us that there is a limited group of people, the apostles primarily. But even that, when we look at the nature uh, of the way that Peter... um, I'll say it, Peter performs the miracle, we see that it's not so much his own power or agency, but God himself. Look what he says when he goes to Aeneas. He says, I heal you. 
Jesus Christ heals you. Even when he uh, goes to raise um, Tabitha, it says that Peter prays. He kneels and prays. He knows where the source of power is. It's from God, from God himself. So even where we see the apostles as the ones who primarily perform miracles uh, through the book of Acts, we see that the power comes from God, but we also see that the frequency of miracles tapers off. And I think that is because, frankly, they served their purpose. They did authenticate the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They did legitimize the apostles, which is important because they serve as the foundation of the church with Christ himself, the cornerstone. So they had to be legitimized. And finally, I think they authenticated the gospel as it spread. We see that whole towns like Luda and Joppa believe based upon the miracle that had occurred. So that brings us to our last question. Should I expect a miracle? Should, should I expect it? And I want to come back to this middle ground again, which is, number one, be willing to pray for a miracle. You very well may see one. God still does them. But don't live with this expectant demand. God can, but we can't hold him to he must. We pray and we submit ourselves to his will. Um, I don't expect to see miracles performed today on the same frequency and cadence as I do in the book of Acts. And I think very often those who are holding on to that sometimes are fighting a battle that's already been won. They're looking for God to authenticate and legitimize himself in the world. And he's done that. And we can have our hope in that. So uh, miracles were primarily authenticating signs to substantiate the the legitimacy of something, the deity of Christ, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the legitimacy of an apostle, the legitimacy of the gospel as it spread. And we've seen that well demonstrated. So I'll close with one last little bit here, sort of pastorally. We'll take this from Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors. And if you find yourself in this situation where you feel like, I need a miracle, well, I want to tell you, pray for it. Ask for it. You don't want to have not because you ask not. But be open-handed with it as well. Tim Keller has said this, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. And that is a good perspective. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the miracle of our salvation. We still live in these frail bodies that get injured. that uh, we take on illnesses, diseases come to us. But we know, Lord, and we have confidence because of Jesus Christ that we will not dwell in these broken bodies forever, but one day you will give us a body to die for. In fact, you died for us that we might have that. Thank you that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you for the miracle of our eternal destiny being changed from those who were in bondage to sin and to its rightful punishment. We have been freed. Christ has moved us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son. Thank you for that miracle. It is our hope, and I pray that we, Lord, would be those who proclaim that gospel to others, the greater work 
of seeing people eternally saved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.